Welcome to The Big Rich Show. This podcast will focus on conversations with friends and acquaintances within the four-wheel drive industry. Many of the people that I will be interviewing, you may know the name, you may know some of the history, but let's get in depth with these people and find out what truly makes them a four-wheel drive enthusiast. So now's the time to sit back, grab a cold one, and enjoy our conversation. Whether you're crawling the Red Rocks of Moab or hauling your toys to the trail, Maxxis has the tires you can trust for performance and durability. Four wheels or two, Maxxis tires are the choice of champions because they know that whether for work or play, for fun or competition, Maxxis tires deliver. Choose Maxxis. Dread victoriously. I'd like to take this opportunity to thank Forlow Magazine for contributing to the success of this podcast. Forlow Magazine, an enthusiast magazine for the 4x4 off-road community. Today's episode, we're going to be visiting with Dustin Webster, the original Red Bull team member in the United States and rock crawler, and discuss his life leading up to rock crawling, rock crawling, and then after rock crawling. Sit back and enjoy a conversation with Dustin. Let's see, is that working? Yeah, that's working good. Excellent. Good. I don't have the right color lighting, so of course. That's ah, all good. I'm all purple. <laughs> you're a little blue. Hopefully yeah. you're not under the weather. Oh, I have been. I've been I was destroyed. I was went through COVID protocol and I was down to quarter breaths and Full, wow. full pneumonia and, uh, you know, off to the hospital and the whole works. So for me, it's been. So did you have a it? Few weeks. Here's the problem. I'm too young to test. I went in the doc goes, you probably got it. In, in Kaiser, in the Kaiser system in Southern California, he says, we got like a thousand tests to go around all the Kaiser hospitals. And he said, so it's only for the elderly and immunocompromised. He goes, so I cannot do anything for you right now. He says, there's no testing. So I'm going to send you home. I want you to make sure that you, uh, you go ahead and self quarantine. And so that was, I got, I got ultra sick on the second of this month. And then um, I was sick a few days before that as well, but it went away and I felt great. And then, boy, did it hit me. And I was up in Montana at, a, at an international ski event. So people had flown in from all over the place. And I got really sick and was like, you know, literally, <gasps> that was my breathing. Sick in December mm-hmm. um, after the... We had an off-road expo um, Andy Myers did down in Phoenix. Yeah. And when we came back from that, we were remodeling my parents' house. Mm-hmm. And I got sick at that time. And I haven't been sick in three three years, really, you know, anything right. more than for a day. It kicked my butt for a good three weeks. I thought maybe I had, like, you know, started in on bronchitis or something, but... It never got super, super bad, any worse than, than probably than I'd been sick when I was younger. But, you know, I don't know if it had anything to do 
you know, with, with them not being able to test or have any conclusive, you know, how far when this, this thing actually started and how it got out and about, it's so hard to tell who was what. I mean, Jesse has been recovering, but they couldn't, they didn't test him as well. They just said, we're going to assume that you have this yeah. because of all your symptoms. Both his daughters were, uh, both the kids were sick, but Sarah never got sick. So yeah. uh, they're, they're nice. all recovering now. Like it sounds like you are. So that's all good for sure. Yeah. I heard Jesse had gotten his butt kicked as well. And Becca, she felt kind of yucky for a, a few days, but she's avoided it, you know, but she's got to be a carrier if I have it. Garrett, he was sick separately from me and now because he's, he's back at home, you know, well, he saves up money to buy a house and it's pretty crazy how bad it got me. You know, I was vicious. I was, I was sleeping 16 to 20 hours a day of full deep REM sleep, like gone. You, I don't, nothing wakes me 16 to 20 hours a day. Wow. And that was for 10, 12 days straight. That's not like you either. Hmm. You're one of those little energizer bunnies from... Oh, go, go. But not like Becca, but <laughs> that woman goes. That's for sure. Thank you for joining me. The, uh, the whole idea behind the conversations with Big Rich is to enlighten people in the off-road community about our history, about uh, people that have been influencers in the, uh, in the industry. It's not... It's not time stamped so much with our lifestyle. It's really hard to find time to where we, where everybody can get together at a time. And, you know, fortunately or unfortunately with this whole uh, sheltering in place, people have more time now. So I'm trying to get caught up and get a bunch of these done. We're just going to talk in general. I'm going to let you just, we'll get started. And, you know, what I'd like to talk about is the early days before you got into rock crawling competition, some of your background. There's a lot of people out there wheeling that nowadays that have never um, had the opportunity to meet you or see you on Pirate or whatever. You know, we want to bring those those old heroes back into, into, you know, into the fold. So when you make your rock crawling comeback, people will oh, know God, who you we are. want to. We want <laughs> no, to. We I know that. To. It's so badass, but oh, life just... <laughs> takes its turns but well that's cool you know you bring up cody and uh, i'm hope you got enough time to dig into his history because man was uh, from him to be there you know in the early days and then disappear completely and then to make a comeback is very cool and the way he's doing it and spreading the love let's just say by sharing it with everybody in so many ways he's really he's one of the icons of of the sport even Absolutely. though he's not, he hasn't gotten a win, uh, the, the big win that he's after, a, a, you know, a series championship or, you know, or a king of the hammers or any of that. But he's still, he's one of the, he's like, I'm, I'm going to use this word lightly, but he's like the sugar daddy of the sport right now. Because between him and his father and the family, they've done so well and they're not being greedy about it. And they're not being, you know, they don't have his nose in the air about it. It's badass to see him go from that 
beautiful little Willie's Jeep that he did so well. I mean, the springs hung down so freaking far. How did he not hang up on every little obstacle? <laughs> and then to come into owning two of the most incredible machines on the planet, handing the keys off to people to drive. I got to drive Pretty Penny. Pretty Penny it was insane. Yeah. It, it's insane to get it to drive is, that machine. And that it, Armada car that he's got. <laughs> My God, I can't imagine. I want to get a ride in that someday. But <laughs> it's very cool to see Cody uh, back in the game, coming back the way he did. I'm, his, I'm, his I'm proud of him. His contributions to the off-road four-wheel drive um, industry right now is a lot bigger than most people know. He's one of our marketing partners. Same thing with Ultra 4 and Dave. You know, he's he's supporting a bunch of the rock crawlers right now mm -hmm. in helping them out, you know, either in, you know, as a, as a marketing partner or sponsor. It's it's nice to see him in a position to be able to do that. Well, I'm, I'm proud of him. I'm, I'm jealous of him for being able to get back into it after he stepped out. He did exactly what Becca and I wanted to do. You know, we hope to find some success in between that time and now so we could jump back in full force and the way he came back in is just you know hats off to you mr wagner you kick ass that's for sure dustin just uh tell us about your early history you know you go into you've been in competitive sports for a long time way before rock crawling you want to touch some bases there and how you got got involved with everything that you do well, I was a, um, I was in high school. I was having some interesting family times. I needed some outside support to help me through some some interesting times. Let's just say with my own family, and I got into the sport of diving. And there was a special coach, Carol Humphreys, who took me under her wing. She helped me through about five years of my life that 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 wouldn't have gone so well had I not had this person in my life. During that time, I just fell in love with the sport of diving, but I really fell in love with it because I wanted to do crazy things and just make people uh, laugh and cheer and be in awe. I didn't, I didn't do it because, oh, I wanted to win anything. I didn't care if I won these competitions that I was going to. I just wanted to do tricks and things that nobody would do. I wanted to make the judges laugh, which you never want to do. I, I was like the anti-competitor of all things. Somebody had, I'd seen a show at Magic Mountain for this high diving exhibition and somebody there said, hey, why don't you come and join us? You want to be a diver? Then, you know, work hard and set it as a goal to join our team here at Magic Mountain because all we do is hang out all day long backstage, have some laughs and then go out on stage for 15 minutes at a time, four times a day, dive and do silly things for the crowds. At the end, we climb up this long, lonely tower up 100 feet in the air and throw ourselves off of it and hope we survive. And at the end of the show, all the girlies want to come and meet the divers. It's like, sounds like my gig. So I did that. A few years later, I went and I auditioned for them, got the job and was diving at Magic Mountain in the show. But the only problem was I was afraid of heights. I hated heights. They sent me up to the 10-meter platform, which is the highest Olympic level, to set up some 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 of the show props. I had I tied myself to the ladders I was climbing up because I was afraid. 
And then after a few weeks, I realized that at the end of the day, I don't go home with the girly because it's the high diver that goes home with the girl. And well, motivation. I better learn to high dive. (laughs) Awesome. So I did. Um, I learned to high dive instantly uh, fell in love with it. It was instantly over my fear of heights. I, I had a super good talent for it because I could find my feet. We, we land on our feet from, from that high up. We don't land head first like, like we would in Acapulco. And I do, go, I do go head first in Acapulco, but that's a very unique situation. So anyways, I, I learned to high dive and I quickly learned tricks that nobody else was doing. Unfortunately, I still didn't go home with the girl. It wasn't about high diving. <laughs> Just how it worked. But, <laughs> but you got over your fear of heights. I got over my fear of heights. And then after, after my first year, there were competitions going internationally where you could go on the road and just compete, diving off of these cliffs and bridges and castles. And I dived off at crazy things. There's, we, right after the Bosnian War, we went to this place called Mostar, which was famous for a little bridge that had stood from Roman times. They blew it up in the war, but before that, people would go there from from the time they were 15-ish, 14, 15, 16 years old. They'd walk for 100 miles or so as a, as a young man to pass the rites of manhood. They'd have to dive from this bridge. Most of them wiped out, would be unconscious. We called it mud skipping because the river was muddy and they'd dive off of this bridge and they'd land flat on their face and they're unconscious in the water. And they've got people on kayaks there, paddle over to them, drag them out of the water, put them over there, over the kayak, paddle quick to the edge because the river's hauling ass and drag them over to the side. Uh, and, and the crowd would pull them out and give them pats on the back and wake them up. And you're a man now. It was the dumbest <laughs> thing ever. The dumbest thing ever, but they blew up this bridge. The days, like literally three days after the ceasefire, all the bunch of the cliff divers, we we flew over to the coast of Croatia and then drove inland and uh, took a gigantic crane, one of the building cranes, the the upright cranes that self-lifts, and we drug it out over the river and we did a high diving competition from this bridge and people came from all over so that we could dive we could dive and they could watch us compete the ritual restarted that had been shut down for like five years so it was kind of you know those kinds of things that's what we did we just traveled around diving off of things and would hope that the local tourism boards and hotels and stuff would help us out with a few bucks while we did our competitions and so i did that for a whole bunch of years and eventually ran into Red Bull and I didn't I was just sitting on the edge of a platform in my speedo yeah captain speedo I am and I had a I had my cowboy hat on and I was uh drinking a Red Bull somebody saw me on live tv because we were being filmed for tv we'd follow soccer over there you know there's millions of people watching soccer because that is their sport over in Europe they they were into overtime on soccer and they they pan they they switched to a shot of the cliff diving platform saying hey in just a few minutes the cliff diving is going to start so right after this game stick around stick around because they want people to continue watching their channel i was sitting on the edge of the platform drinking a red bull right then i just tipped the can red bull chased us down 
And they said, hey, we want to meet that guy. They were brand new. Red Bull was brand new. They were like two years old, only in Europe. And they'd never seen a can here in the U.S. or anywhere else in the world. And they said, hey, we'd like you to be one of our athletes. And I wasn't their first athlete in, in the international game. But they said, hey, we're coming to the U.S. We'd like you to be our first U.S. athlete. You know, we believe in you. They, they threw, they went all in behind me. They made it possible that I could continue diving around the world. And I did that for a bunch of years. And then I went to a rock crawling competition. And all of a sudden, I didn't care about cliff diving anymore. I continued to do it because that's how I made my money. But I went to a competition and it was in Farmington and it was an ARCA competition. It was Palmer's birthday, Mike Palmer's birthday. And he had these balloons tied to the back of his it Psycho Billy Cadillac. No, no, that wasn't it. It was he was driving. Yeah, it was a it was a caddy powered black Campbell buggy that was just right. ridiculous. He made the most exciting climb up this wall that everybody else had taken the taken a trickier crawly lineup, and he got to the top of that, and that was the wildest ride I'd ever seen. And then there's Shannon in his red buggy and his brother or somebody hanging onto a rope, making this downhill off camera corner, coming back up. Uh, Jason Bunch, Jason in, in that little four banger Jeep should not be doing what he's doing. Uh, it was, it was off the charts and my jaw was on the floor the whole time. I remember pissing the hell out of, off of this. This guy was so pissed off at me because I had a camera and I and I ran forward and, and took some video of uh, Palmer coming straight up at me. I remember turning around. It was this little scrawny little little kid with his video camera there. <laughs> it turned out to be Pat Gallagher. And I fucked up his good shot. Oops, excuse the French. I screwed up his great shot because I ran in front of him. So, you know, I, I had this experience of, of seeing the sport from the heart because – there weren't there weren't banners and stuff in that day, man. You could walk right up to the car when they were when they were on the course, you know. And they had spotters standing on the vehicles and all that. It was a very personal element to the sport. And I'm like, I got to do this. I really want to do this. I talked to Red Bull, and they're like, No, we don't think so. We don't do we don't cross our athletes over at all. So when they told me no. I said, okay, well, I'm going to go do it anyway. So I took my street-driven Jeep, my daily driver, and I went just north of San Diego to Menifee and joined this CRCA, which was a rock race put on by Jeff Knoll. And it was their, it was one of their very first events that they did. And I'm just like, you know, they've got a stock class. They've got a top class. They've got, you know, different classes I'm going to run in the top class because I'm badass. I am a very good driver. Well, I was an entertaining driver, it turns out. Maybe <laughs> not the greatest. <laughs> but in my heart, I knew I could complete, complete all of those damn obstacles. And I pretty much did. But I destroyed my Jeep along the way. And I showed, I showed Red Bull this videos of me driving the Jeep there and competing and driving at home. And I said, hey, I want, I, I want to put together this project to where we, where we literally use a stock Jeep and compete it in the biggest class of competition. 
And there's this organization. I've seen this video where this guy, Chris Durham, you should have seen Mike Schaefer and these guys, they're, they're driving. And this was a video that it was one of the first videos that RP Films had put out. And it had, what was your first competition? It was up in Northern California. Lake um, Amador. Amador. It had, yeah, it had Amador. And I'm like, I want to go compete with those guys because that's a big event. It's really exciting. And, you know, it looks like more fun than anything I've seen so far. And so that's when I reached out to you and I asked for some rules and said, you know, how do I build? I don't even know what the rules are. And, and we built that uh, daily driver. I built that stock Jeep into something that was still very stock. I had the kids seats in the back, a spare tire and a high lift on the back with big racks. And, you know, I was still fully daily driven going to compete that. And Red Bull said, you're going to compete that in the big, in the toughest class. I said, yeah, I'm going to go into pro mod. Cause that's, there's, that's the biggest class. And at that time it was because in the unlimiteds, it was, you know, it was your heroes like, like Polly, Jordan, Don Robbins, you know, these guys were all in the top class with rear steer. That wasn't there. I think Hulesman competed in that class too, in, in unlimited, but there was only like three or four of them. There were like 35 or, you know, 30 guys in pro mod. So that was a class. I wanted to be in that. And God, we didn't finish many courses. Uh, my first, my first comp said was at Lions Pride, and I think we finished half the courses, maybe. Um, and that was a very forgiving competition location. And our second comp was Donner. <laughs> we thrashed the Jeep there. I mean, we we put it on its side so many times, but the spotter ride footage that we had was off the charts and just making the attempts on all of those huge obstacles. It was, it was rewarding, self-rewarding to me to do that. And Red Bull at the same time instantly fell in love with what we were doing because we were out to have a great time. And if we got some, if we got a, a decent finishing position, great. If, if we didn't, oh, well, not, not so big because we were turning the crowds on. We had so much fun. Then the end of the season rolls around and we're out in uh, Cougar Buttes area. That was the season finale for that year. Walker won that year with his, with his pickup because he had taken the rear steer off. He took first event, he had the rear steer locked out. And then the second event, he took the whole axle off and put on a different Dynatrack Pro Rock on the back, competed, and that truck was doing so well so well and then gosh we ended up third that year in pro mod and it was more because we went to every cal rocks event and we scored points at them all and we didn't do terrible we never we always finished middle of the pack but it worked out because yep. we didn't have any bad events and we didn't have any missed events red bull was like this is awesome we love what you did here because you know you're against the odds driving this vehicle you're 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 making people want to follow you regardless and they would i couldn't believe it tracy jordan's up and he's doing these incredible runs you know there's one of the most talented drivers on the planet and they run over and see him and then they come back to see me because they were going to see him accomplish something awesome and they were going to see me self-destruct so they <laughs> it was they knew that they had to follow you know a few only a few drivers at that point so the crowd's 
Well, I still use, I still quote you a lot when uh, people get, when drivers get upset because they may roll over, they just, they're down on themselves because they know they're not going to win the event at that point. And I tell them, I said, I always tell them, I say, you know what, you got to do what Dustin Webster said, because if you can't win the show, be the show. Yep. And And it's always that way. Look, there can only be one winner, one winner, but there can be lots of heroes flat out. There really can be. And, and, and for your marketing partners, as long as it's not costing you too much, you know, to repair the damage that you do for your marketing partners, being a hero is a surefire way to bring results to your sponsors, your partners, you know, whoever we had, we considered our sponsors, our partners, because once we went with them, we didn't jump ship. You know, that was it. We, it wasn't a money thing in, in the end of that first season, Red Bull came to me and they said, look, you, do, you know what you're doing here. You know, you didn't, you didn't win anything. Yeah. You, you got a third place and that's awesome because you're on the podium in the season, but you didn't win any major events, but we're not disappointed at all by that. And I said, well, I never promised we'd win a thing. I told you we probably wouldn't finish a single competition. You know, we wouldn't be able to, to, to even do half of the courses. We might not finish any of them. At that point, it was like, just see what these guys are setting up. I'm going to take a 90. I was, I was stock. I was stock wheelbase, rung over and flexier. And, oh, get out. That thing just wanted to fall over. We didn't know what we were doing. We didn't even know what a sway bar was. <laughs> you know, we didn't know how all that stuff worked. We just saw an opportunity. We put it together and made that first season happen. And then at the end of that season, we heard about a, a Pro Rocks competition going on with Bob Hazel, and it was a women's only event. And that was going to be up in Cedar City. Well, my wife, Becca, she hated the idea of rock crawling. Um, and I've told the story a million times, but flat out, all she would see is a nice Jeep leave the house and a pile of parts arrived back at the house after the competition because that Jeep was trashed. And I go, I need another couple thousand dollars, (laughs) 5,000 or whatever. And she's like, this is the stupidest thing ever. We're spending every penny that you've got from Red Bull just to rebuild that Jeep. We're not going to have any money left over at the end of the year from the repairs, this kind of thing. You know, she's looking at it from a practical sense of, this is the dumbest sport ever. And she refused to watch videos. She refused. She didn't ever go to a competition, nothing. So finally, I'm like, hey, you know, there's competition in Cedar City. I'd like you to go. We can stop in Vegas on the way back. You know, you'll have a good time. And on the way up, just as we get past, I said, um, by the way, this just when we get past Vegas, we're almost a Cedar. By the way, this is women's nationals and you're competing she'd never been in four-wheel drive before she'd never driven in four-wheel drive so she she's like you're an asshole (laughs) and they said look you're going to be fine you're a competitor at heart you ride three-wheelers and motorcycles and quads like you know like no tomorrow i mean she was at 15 years 16 years old she was on a 250R three-wheeler on an 86 250R that rides like a bat out of hell. I said, you pick great lines, but you don't even have to pick any line. Just listen to your spotter. That was Frank Johnson. I said, just listen to him. 
he's going to tell you what to do. So she's like, all right. And she did so well. She, she led all the way through and then she snapped a drive shaft and took out a, a whole bunch of parts in the end on, on like the second to last course and we couldn't repair it in time. So she ended up second place in the, in the, uh, in the class at, at that first event. And Red Bull went, we love her. Give her that Jeep and you buy what you want. Perfect. And that's, that's where the, the two car team came from. I remember uh, going, geez, which car do I want? I most want Jason Pauly's buggy because he was getting ready to sell. He was, he was at SEMA. This is SEMA was when we talked to Red Bull about it and they said, go for it. He was at SEMA and he, there's a little tiny for sale sign on his car. Little tiny. I, yeah. I wanted that car so bad. It was the one with the single airbag in the center that he could use to pump it up just a little bit. But that was his first car. I guess that's the one he had the shag carpet body that he built. Um, he had a shag carpet body for one of the events because he didn't have enough panels. And Arca was not happy with him. But anyway, that's his story to tell, not mine. The uh, I wanted that car, but I knew that that car may help me win competitions because it's so good. But there's a car that I think is almost as good, which was Walker Evans's pickup. And I knew that people relate more to the bodies. And, you know, in, in the world of off-road at that time, nobody paid attention to any other class but uh, trophy trucks. That was it. You know, that's the class. And they're recognizable. And they they could have built the trophy truck in any design they wanted, you know, before they named it trophy trucks. And it, you had to build it as a truck they could have built the top desert race class to look like anything. You know, that would be way more practical if you did, but because people fell in love with the sexiness of a, of a real vehicle and, and the relatability of, of the major brands, the Fords, the Dodge, the, you know, whatever. So I knew that that truck was the one that I needed. I made Walker an offer on the truck and said, okay, I'm going to build something else anyway. I've got some things in my mind. He uh, he sold it to me, and I got very lucky. That was uh, that was a blessing. That next season, we came out with a bang into Cal Rocks and won a won a few events, including the season you know season title, which was that was huge because that was a big that was a big year of competition. You know, I beat Walker, and he had he had all the advantages of that new buggy and that old buggy just worked so well. So I got, I got what I consider my lucky year. Everything came together, right? The teams worked out, right? We had so much support from all the other competitors. That's the thing about this competition. McGritch, you don't run an off-road competition. You're like the godfather of the greatest family on the planet. (laughs) You know, it really is that way. What, what you have done, for the sport is you know give us an opportunity for all these friends to come together and i really appreciate what you and and uh, and now shelly of course have have done for us as a as a family of competitors well thank you i remember we rock changed from cal rocks to we rock we became the only rock crawling series and i remember jeff Mello called me up and said well, after ARCA had put out their uh, 
their famous email about we're no longer going to be in business. Mello called me up and goes, hey, Rich, you won. And I'm like, I won? What do you mean? And uh, he said, well, you know, you're the only event series now. ARCA has, uh, or UROC is no longer going to be putting on events. And I was like, oh, man, you know, it was always good to have competition yeah. so that you could set yourself apart from what somebody else was doing. And then you told me, well, now you can't quit, Rich. And <laughs> I went, what do you mean I can't quit? And you said, the rock crawling was built on companies and so many companies were built off of the rock crawling and people's shops and everything else that if there's no more rock crawling series, all these people are going to, you know, the, that have built industries around it are going to have a chance of failing. And I remember telling you, Oh man, don't put that shit on me. That was pressure. <laughs> that was pressure. Yes, it was. And here we are. It's now 2020 and we're still going. Quite impressive. That's a, uh... Two decades, my friend. Yes. You know, for you, that's a, that's a hell of a time investment, and personal investment. But, you know, in the end, the sport has longevity. I, I believed it back then, and we were talking about, you know, all the racing and all that kind of stuff. And I keep I kept saying, even to, to Red Bull, they were like, well, would you want to push over into the desert race? And would you... You know, you want to get it. It's like, no, because that doesn't have a lot of longevity. If you if you look at the sport as a whole for desert racing, those guys change sponsors like they like they change their socks. You know, they have to because it's such a huge investment in the win cycle and the hero cycle. It, it's it, it's not it's not as affordable. It's not as easy. It's not as practical. You literally live your life for that sport in so many ways you have to be able to do that or have so much money that that you can afford to eat that many dollars along the way that, that was my feeling when we got into this sport was hey it's possible to have longevity in the sport of rock crawling even if you don't have major sponsors people don't realize that having major sponsors actually takes more work than just going to work you know, most people, if you have a steady job at 20 bucks an hour, you're probably doing better than most sponsored people are. <laughs> and you compete, you know, <laughs> then uh, I can't believe how much we spent just trying to keep the team afloat and looking the way it had to look and, and pushing the marketing, you know, the way we did. And, you know, there's all kinds of, of things that you need to do for your sponsors that cost dollars, you know, get them a flight here, get them a limousine there, you know, uh, it, it, it all adds up. And in the end, I would have made just as much money at the end of the year, or maybe even more, had I not had the sponsor, if I'd had a decent job, but I didn't, I was an athlete. When you, when you start at 17, 18 years old as a professional athlete, and you live that through your thirties, you, you don't save any money painting a cliff diver. You sure don't because there's no money in the damn sport. None. You know, so it wasn't like I had anything. So for me, I had, it was do or die. I had to have somebody like Red Bull support me because I couldn't really go out and get a job that would work. Um, but you, I, you brought something into the rock crawling sport that, that nobody realized before that, 
you know, I mean, guys had had sponsors from people in the automotive industry or in the, you know, that were directly related to off-road. It's a non-endemic. Yeah. You, you brought in, you brought in that, that outside, outside the industry marketing partner sponsor, and you did things a lot differently. And, and I'm, it was great that you did that because it got people to thinking about how you should be treating sponsors. Everybody, you know, I, I hate the term sponsor. You know, we talked, we talked about this years ago, you know, and it, it is marketing partners. It's about marketing partners. creating those partnerships. You know, even nowadays when we, when we're interested in working with somebody, it's all about building a relationship first. It's not about sending them a proposal and saying, hey, I want you to be part of our, our off-road family and this is what I can do for you. I want those people to know who I am before I present a package. Right. And that's how you keep people around forever, you know. And, you know, there are some guys that can jump ship and go after the biggest dollar. That's not what we've ever done. We've always, you know, we've prided ourselves on being with good companies that produce a good product and then we do everything we can for them to to give back to them to help them grow their business. Right. Yeah. But really, you know, the, the thing is, is uh, some people give, some people, some people treat the people that the athletes or competitors that jump from one to another to another uh, sponsor, they give them crap for that. And it really shouldn't because it takes both kinds. It takes people like me and you, um, we ride for the brand. Right. Um, it, riding for the brand is huge to me um, because I build a pride in building a relationship and working together to take us both to, from point A to point B and beyond if possible. But the thing is, is you, not everybody has that skill set or has that particular drive. Some people have a win, a vision of win, win at all costs. And there's nothing wrong with that at all. God, no. You know, their their goal is a completely different thing. Their goal is maybe not to push the sponsor, you know, to where they want to go. It's more of, okay, let's, we have this mutual short-term agreement. How can we blast? How can we launch my team to the top? And uh, that's that's actually harder work, I think, than building the long term. Because there's more pressure. Constantly, there's a lot more pressure, and and you're constantly having to change, constantly having to build, rebuild partnerships. You're constantly chasing new partnerships, but it's one of those. It's it's almost like a, a Shannon Campbell mantra of win or explode, you know, in the competition from the time that green flag drops, you're either going to be on top of the podium or you're going to self-destruct in the, in the works. And, and that's kind of how it is when you jump sponsors a lot, but their odds of winning are pretty damn high. You know, yes. their odds of maybe more so than the people that build the partnership for the long haul, because I just want to make sure that along the way I'm doing my part to make sure my partners rock it up because the higher they go, the more they'll be able to take me with them. 
I, I, I don't need to be above. A lot of people will say, oh, that's bullshit. You go into every competition to win. Well, define win. Am I not winning at life by, by taking my avenue versus, you know, and, and personal satisfaction than I am, you know, if my, I, I'm a win at all cost kind of person. Now, don't get me wrong. I want to win. I want to win a competition. It feels great. You know, I push myself super hard in, in cliff diving and, you know, got a bunch of world titles and, and Acapulco title and, you know, a whole bunch of cool titles that were awesome. And it was very personal and rewarding to do that. But it wasn't until I retired from the sport that I went, oh, shit, I forgot to bring the rest of the sport with me. And so now I've gone back to that sport in the past 10 years and have gone back and started working with them again to do the things that I should have been doing from the very beginning, which is taking everybody with me. You know, well, that's at, my, at my my at my own sacrifice. Right. Yeah. That <laughs> that's a big part of that. Absolutely. You know, as I've after twenty years of doing this um, as a promoter, and the few years before that, helping others with their events, gotten to that point where it's like, you know, how much longer do I really physically want to do this? Mentally, I want to do this the rest of my life. But it's that physical thing about, you know, okay, you know, my knees are bad. I got one, you know, Achilles heel that's, uh, that is bothering me quite a bit. Um, you know, I'm not getting any younger. And now I'm working pretty much the courses all by myself. I, I do all the setup. I do all the teardown, do all the load in, all the load out, do all the driving to events. It's like, okay, what's for the future? You know, what, what, how much longer am I truly going to be able to do this? Right. Haven't put a date on it. You know, guys are asking all the time, you know, how much longer are you going to do it? I'm building a car. I said, go ahead, build your car. There'll be something. Even if I decide to quit, somebody will go, okay, we got to keep this going. Yeah. You know? And, uh, and I'll never fully quit. I love the industry. I love the people involved with it, whether it's on the right. racing side or the, or the trail side, you know, I've made a lot of great relationships over the years and I don't want to forsake those just to go sit on a couch because yeah. sitting on a couch is not, I mean, hell, I'm sitting on a bed doing this, you know, <laughs> my studio is one of the hotel rooms. That it's a great studio. Hotel. It's got good sound. Come on. It, it works good. Yeah, it does. So you guys, you know, went through the rock crawling, then you got into, into the racing end of it as well. Well, we, for a while we did, but it was more of a, of a plain and simple, the King of the Hammers type racing is a different kind of commitment. It's a huge risk dollar wise, massive risk dollar wise. It's, it takes its toll on you and a whole bunch of people. I'm not the kind of person that wants to bring 15 people, 20 people out to run pits for me and then never show up at their pit. And, you know, they've, They've come all this way. They've paid all this money and, and, and they sit out there all day, not getting to, into the action, waiting for me to come in. And, and we never arrived because something went wrong. And yeah. But you know, if we had better prep, better plans, everything, we'd have a better chance of getting there. But it, to me, it doesn't, it doesn't feel right. And 
we're not sharing like we did in crawling. In crawling, you're always 100 feet from your trailer, 200 feet from your trailer, and your whole team is laughing with you and crying with you. I remember there was one point where on Aftershock, when we were racing King of the Hammers, Dallas was my co-driver, and we were taking the bypass, and uh, we just passed up Ken Mercer's burning car. I think it was Ken's. Yeah, we just passed that burning car. We'd gone on the bypass. We kicked a rock with the right rear tire, and the back end kind of slid down. I'm like, I'm going to back up just a little bit and reshoot it. And all of a sudden, we're, we're upside down on aftershock on the bypass right above a giant cliff. And we get out, and I'm like, we're all alone out here. And this is a massive risk. We've got ham radio, but it's not reaching the repeater because of where we're at in the canyon. And we're about a quarter mile, you know, maybe more from the pits. But there's nobody here. When we had to self-recover on the side of that cliff, and I'm an adrenaline junkie. I love challenges. I love fear. But to self-recover, if people saw what we did to self-recover, they'd go, what the hell were you thinking? Why would you? Like, literally, it was the it was the biggest cheating death scenario that I've ever had. I mean, the, the, the Jeep is all the way upside down on its roof. And I have a center mounted winch in the car that's mounted right behind my, right behind the driver and passenger seat. And I'm able to, uh, I put it there so that I could root, root the winch line up through the chassis, out through the top. And I put a big ring in the center of my roll cage. That's a big fairly, it's big, you know, inch and three quarter diameter tubing. And I can run the winch line out any direction. And so that if I had to, go around the hillside leaning, I could pull the winch line out through the roof. And then I still had a front winch that I could pull myself. And then I could pin, I could just do a big swing around a hill if I needed to do that. Well, now I'm upside down and I'm not strapped in. I can't get strapped back in because I had to get out and rig all this stuff. How do you belt back into a buggy? When you're upside down. (laughs) When you're upside down, you can't. So we get the winch lines rigged. I get both winch lines, the front winch line, and ran it back and around the shock tower and up and, and up the hill. And then the, the 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 center mount winch line, I run out the roof around the buggy and up the hill as well. And I'm grabbing onto boulders that that you and I together could rock them and push them down the hill. And that's what I'm grabbing onto. I'm, I'm trying to winch the vehicle uphill. Well, I'm standing in the middle of the vehicle, pushing my winch button that's in the center console. I'm, I'm pushing the button and I'm standing in the middle of the vehicle, walking across the ins up, you know, the bottom of the roof and then into the, to the cage. And I figured it out that, okay, if, if the, the rocks come down and the buggy starts to roll, I'm going to dive straight sideways out the window and hope that the buggy rolls off of me. Otherwise, it's taking me with me, and then I'm going off of the cliff. Those kinds of moments are like, <laughs> you know, I really, I really miss rock crawling at this very moment. <laughs> what the hell am I doing? This is crazy. And Dallas is just shaking his head the whole time. He goes, this is why. Why? We really need to walk. And, you know, it's like it's a half mile or more, and it's a half mile. We're not going to finish this race if we do that. We're done. 
we have to continue nobody this is like 45 minutes to an hour nobody came up that canyon that whole time that was it was just us and a plume of smoke quarter eighth of a mile down the hill where the last of ken mercer's buggy is burning i think it was ken's i don't i don't remember pretty it surreal close. it was just one of those moments of this is not okay so we did we did do the racing and we did it we did king of the hammers on a different idea we did it we started back with the daily driver project you know we wanted to be able to take a street street jeep you know a street legal even though in california it, it would it wouldn't pass smog because we had we put a fuel cell in it we wanted to drive it to the competition race it and drive home and it was that jeep that we built in a week it was it was a it was a fun project to do but it was pretty dumb it was really a dumb dumb idea i mean <laughs> we we had some riot laughs you know a lot of a big laughs but for me i think more of a dirt riot that type you know the the short course the you know those kinds of things make more sense to my style of competition uh, i hate leaving people out in the boondocks waiting on me i, I hate that I, I like the family part that was yeah. my reward all the friends and like i said laughing together crying together screaming at each other whatever it took you know it was there was always great great emotions and and camaraderie in that but I never felt that when I was doing the King of the Hammers and we did it three times. After the, the rock crawling, you guys started getting into flipping houses mm-hmm. as a business. Yeah, that's, that's what we did. Um, we started in 2009, right at, right at the end. And it was, you know, we had the, the, the big, the big crash in 2008, the, you know, all the banking and mortgage companies and everything, uh, you know, we had that recession at that point. Money was hard to come by. We started by helping some neighbors who were just like, don't, don't, don't just walk away from your homes here. Here's how to do a short sale of your house. We don't want to see you devastated because you're going to get charged taxes on the losses and it'll be on your record forever versus a short term. So we started talking to neighbors and helping them out. And then we just decided, well, you know what? We don't have any skills beyond I'm a, I, you know, I was a machinist so I can build things. You know, I know how we can, we can build a car. We can do fiberglass. We can, you know, we can spray paint. You know, I've had a little bit of, of experience in all these areas. Houses are way easier than this stuff. Way easier. There's nothing to them. So we said, no, we'll start taking them on. And we started buying homes that nobody wants. They're the ones where the, the slabs and the foundations are all cracked up and picked up and all messed up. And there's rotten mold or whatever. We picked up the ones that nobody wanted. And we changed the layouts of the interiors and and put everything brand new in them. You know, we pulled brand new wire from all the way from the from the electrical panels and and replumbed the whole damn thing. And that's what it took. Reslab the whole house whatever whatever it took we took the ones that nobody would want and during that time it was good because we we started right at the bottom of the market when things when things were at their worst and it was a steady climb so the, even if we had to work longer though which cost us money the rise in the value of the house would make up for that and so things were pretty good 
and then HGTV came along. HGTV, all these people were going on with their shows going, well, yeah, we bought this house for this and, and we put this much money into it and then we sold it for this and this is our profit. And everybody's looking at this at home. They're going, oh my God, I could be rich. This is so easy. Look how much money they're making. Well, yeah, but they didn't include all their sponsored products in what their cost was. Correct. They didn't include they didn't include their overhead. They didn't include their commissions. They didn't include, you know, just normal business operations, permits, all that kind of stuff. They don't put that in the, to those shows in the early days. They ne- they didn't put it in. So people got into it and started bidding obnoxious amounts of money on um, into into these homes and now we had competition so now we're buying houses at 20 30 40 thousand dollars more than they should be purchased for our profit margins are down are slimming down more and more and more and then when the housing housing prices kind of leveled off but the for the for the remodeled houses but the junkers were still climbing now all of a sudden there's this tiny margin and there's competition to buy them. So the with with that said, what do you do? It, it got too difficult. And we just just now we we haven't been making hardly any money at all on our flips. And California just passed a, a state law to where even in the construction industry, if you're hiring contract labor, you you have to hire them as a full employee. You know, workman's comp, everything. Wait, I have to, I hire contract labor. For, I hire a guy for three days and say, you know, here, I need this particular job done. So this, and the, this California law came out called AB5. And now, even in the construction industry, if you hire a contract labor, a guy that's a, a 1099 labor, and he, you want him to come in for three days to do something simple that doesn't take a contractor's license to do, you have to hire him as a full-time employee, even if it's only for three days. Well, California just made it impossible to run a construction business unless you're one of the big, big guys that has 50 people on full-time crew that's jumping from job site to job site to job site to job site because you can keep them employed year-round. Those are the only guys that can survive. The unions love this. They're great with it. But the rest of us, they've just pulled the, pulled the rug out from under us. Yeah. So I just, I I know so many industries got hurt by this badly. Um, You know, from musicians to, uh, you know, hairdressers to a bunch of people. And and yeah, they're starting to carve out some niches where they say, okay, that particular job, that particular industry, they can do contract labor, but nobody else can. Well, we're still stuck. So I'm inspecting homes now. That's my new job. I started a new company inspecting homes and and it's going to work out in the long haul. It'll allow me to have less risk because the homes that we were dealing with, we'd have a million dollars on the line all the time. We got a million dollars out of basically loan shark money, you know, stuff from hard money lenders at a very high percentage rate. We've got a million dollars out and we're going to work for three months and the profit's going to be $20,000. Yeah. yeah, that risk reward there, it's not there. Yeah, we're going to get back into racing. <laughs> yeah, good point. There you go. I like your line of thinking there, Big. No, you know what? And we may be in for a big crash here. You know, right now a big a big market crash. And if that happens, if things drop, then there will be there will be some room in 
in the remodel because as you hold the values that come back up when you're doing the remodel now maybe there will be some room again if there is a crash i know it's terrible i don't want to see an economic crash because people are currently hurting pretty badly but if it does come then we'll be back into the into the flipping game again yeah i think the people that are getting hurt right now are those that that play that investment game day to day or hour to hour oh um, man you know the all of our investments are long term it's yeah. just the biggest difference is, is i don't think i'll be retiring as soon as i had as i could right. I might say. it's going to be you know we'll have to put it off a while <laughs> yeah this whole covid thing is is really you know it's hurt the stock market that's for sure well it has and you know the the chance of hyperinflation with all the money that they put in the the fact that the hedge this is in the in the real estate industry um, pretty specifically the the hedge funds that bought mortgage backed securities um, now with interest rates dropping off they're calling their hedges to get their money back out of the industry and so all these mortgage brokers that had borrowed money from these big funds and stuff they're going to have to pay it back in the next like in the next few weeks they're going to have to pay it back because they get called on it. The, you know, I know that I'm just generalizing. It's not exactly how it works, but this is a general idea. Do those mortgage brokers have enough money to be able to pay those people back? If not, mortgage companies fall, fold, all their portfolio gets bought out by somebody else at a lesser value. And then all of a sudden you have a nightmare on your hands because right now with people not being able to pay mortgages and, and, the mortgage companies themselves faltering that can really send kind of a shockwave through the entire industry and houses would we'll, we'll see another drop, you know, in the real estate side. So the stock market, God, I, I don't know enough about the markets, but I can only imagine it's on a wild ride. It is right now. It's like, make sure your seatbelts on because we're dropping, everything's dropping so rapidly, but it, again, you know, like I said, uh, you know, if people play smart, or invest smart, you know, that's, it's all going to turn around and come back. People that are bailing out right now and taking the loss, they'll, it's really hard to recover from that. But. Right. right. Well, Hey, I know this is going to kind of be silly, but can I turn this interview around on you for a second? Sure. Why not? Why not? I've never heard the story of, I know you said, you know, well, after Amador, you know, you kind of committed to the rock crawling and you got into that. But around Amador time, and you were you were also, you were doing the Valley Off-Road Racing, you were doing Bora? Well, or, we, uh, or were you doing, you were working in that industry. I never heard the story of how you got involved with that and then how that whole thing went for you because I know that you were, that you had your fingers in that or, or at least a, a lot of work into that. Right, and uh, I, I had a, a real job um, and then once I did the, the put up or shut up, I walked in through my keys on the counter and with the district manager and said, bye, I'm out of here and quit. Decided to do the rock crawling full time. That was right there at the end of 2001, 2002. I went all in after doing one event and decided to make rock crawling my life. We, uh, when we did Donner, we did before we did Donner as a series event that year, we had gone up there and did an event called Carnage for the Con. 
and it was a rock crawling bunch of clubs. I think there were five clubs that were involved and we put on the rock crawl at Donner spectators showed up and we, the money, the proceeds all went to friends of the Rubicon. After that event, Ed Robinson, who was the guy that originally started Vora Valley Off-Road Racing Association approached me and said, Hey, you know, I got, I'm running this off-road series been doing it for 27 years and I'm looking to step away and somebody like you needs to run this somebody that can organize an event and understands what it takes for the permitting and all that kind of stuff. Now, mind you, I'd only done three events, four events at that point. And I was like, Oh sure. Yeah. Let's, let's talk about this. Well, next thing I know I'm, I purchased Vora from him, but that was after I I said, I got to go see what this is all about first. So went to an event with him um, down in Prairie city got to meet everybody, saw that it was a family type racing association, like we were building with Cal Rocks. So I, I purchased it from him and we ran it for about four years, three and a half, four years. And dealing with BLM, Bureau of Land Management, they had just switched over to what they call cost recovery, which was great if they're working events or working with industries like the gas and oil industry and stuff like that, where they're spending so much time on, on, you know, permits and, and follow through and all the other things that they had to do. But BLM started doing that on small events like us and basically would end up taking every single dollar that we could make on BLM land. And it made it to where it was not cost effective to do. They became, harder and harder to work with. I walked away from doing Vora Valley Off-Road, turned it over to a guy named Dennis Kadonaway, who had been a racer and said, here, it's yours. Just run it. And I walked away. He ran it one race, decided to do the same thing. Wes Harbor ended up buying it. Now he's on the Off-Road Hall of Fame direct. He's a board of director with the Off-Road Hall of Mm -hmm. Fame. And he sold it to Dave Cole. Dave Cole had it for a couple of years so he could run the desert races up in northern Nevada and then turned around and now BJ Butcher, who is one of the kids that was racing in our series, (laughs) is the owner. So it's gone, you know, a couple of full circles. BJ, his wife is in the, uh, does the rebel, the rebel rally which yeah. Shelly and I um, work as volunteers for for Emily Miller's uh, event, which is a really cool event. So I got to see BJ again this year and uh, at registration and tech up in Squaw Valley. And then uh, we saw him at the uh, awards banquet as well. And it was just, it was really nice to see how everybody, you know, is doing, he's doing really well with the desert racing and, and bring it back to the grassroots like it was. But that that background really helped us when we decided to change Cal Rocks into We Rock, try to get this the whole world involved in our rock crawling and trying to get everybody into the same kind of rules so that there was some consistency. Then when we started Dirt Riot, we did the same thing where we were, but we took it all to private property with private property it necessitated that we have smaller 
races and not smaller races in how many people show up, but just smaller Order. courses. And right. what we realized is that it was easier for us to manage without having a big crew and a lot of volunteers. Yeah. It was easier on the teams because they didn't need, you know, every lap, you know, which was only four or five miles. I think our longest that we ever did was, uh, was like 12 and a half miles, but every lap you'd come through your pit. So you didn't get, you know, you had a chance to make repairs and, and keep racing, but it also helped guys learn to race and to finish what, to be able to finish a race and what yeah. it took to go finish a race. So if they did go to ultra four or back then just king of the hammers, it wasn't even ultra called ultra four then that they had a, they had the opportunity then to have met other people that are there racing with. So they build that family. So right. they didn't, everybody could bring just a couple of guys to the race and they could combine and help in the pits. You know, one, one pit crew could help four or five cars. Then all of a sudden every team has four or five pits. If each one of those teams brings enough to run a pit and then, uh, you know, you share resources like that and it, it helps keep the teams financially viable so they can continue to do that. Plus it gave guys the opportunity to finish the race because now they've learned how to finish a race. If they can finish a smaller race, you know, they, they learn how to race basically right. and what it takes and figure out what all the, all the things that kill you in a race, figure out all those problems before getting there. We just let up on Dirt Riot. Um, Dirt Riot's no longer a thing. This year, we're, we're concentrating just on the rock crawling again, you know, letting the, the racers, and there's a lot of other organizations out there now where people yeah. can go race. You know, it was time for us to concentrate. It's just physically impossible to do 20 events a year. Yeah, you know, I was going to say, I couldn't believe how much how much you bit off yeah, to chew there. That's pretty crazy. But the uh, the difficulty, you know, of of trying to make the logistics happen seems crazy. The Dirt Riot concept seemed perfect for, you know, for guys like me that still want the, the family, you know, you laugh and cry together because you're always right there with the same crew, same pit. You know, it's it's not the long distance stuff. You know, it's short short course short course racing in the wild. Yep, it was a really difficult decision for us to make because we have we love the racing, we love the fa racing family, but it just didn't make sense physically or economically any longer to do it. Mm -hmm. And it just it got to the point where we we weighed the two two together, rock crawling one out. Not only is it my first love in off-road, but it's, uh, you know, it's where all my roots are at, where my deepest relationships are. We had to, uh, we had to make a decision. We couldn't offer enough races in all the different other regions of the United States that everybody needed. So you'd have like a, a local race series in Texas could do seven races in Texas. Well, we'd come in and we'd do three races in a central series that might include two or three states teams would go, well, you know what, I can get more racing if I race with these guys. And we understood that. You know, it was time for us to, to you know, shelf Dirt Riot. And uh, we've had some interest where people are saying, you know, hey, we want to bring that back. You know, we're going to try a race and we'll see what happens. And I'm like, hey, you know, do you guys want to do it? We'll help. You know, we've got a lot of experience 
putting on events and races. And, you know, we may not do it the biggest and the flashiest, but we do it right. I like, right. you know, everybody, all the competitors, you know, that deserve it, get paid. You know, everybody gets their, their trophies. Everybody gets acknowledged. Everybody gets treated the same. You know, that's one of the things that we've, we've, we've tried to instill or I've tried to instill is that, you know, there's no, you know, there's no favoritism. It doesn't matter if you're the number one racer in the world or the biggest name out there. I'm going to treat you the same as I do the guy that shows up for the first time in uh, in a clapped out, you know, whatever he's got, he's got, he just had enough money to show up to race. Yeah. I'm going to treat him the same way. In fact, I'll, I'll probably treat him a little bit better than the other guy, you know, <laughs> spend more time with him because you know, that's the guy that, that needs that encouragement. But that's how it was for me when I started putting on the, the events. The teams didn't need to come out to run our events, Cal Rocks. They, you know, they had Pro Rock and they had U-Rock. Uh, well, U-Rock and us started at the same time, but they had ARCA. Yeah. And there was other event series all across the United States. I mean, at one time there was like seven promoters out there putting on rock crawls. Yep. And, I remember uh, that time, E-Rock and eventually all got and... swallowed up or they quit. You know, here I am looking, hopefully find somebody to take over for me someday. Yeah, well, I hope somebody carries on the, what you started because it's obviously been incredible. You built a good foundation for everybody, you know, through a lot of blood, sweat, and I'm sure a lot of tears that we haven't <laughs> heard about. But, you know, a lot of arguments. <laughs> between between you and and little rich and josh and others over the time and now in the modern era your incredible wife how in the world did did our sport get so lucky I, and i ask that i ask that every time i look in the mirror how did i get so lucky to find her absolutely it's a beautiful thing it's it, it really has come around and you know of course you know, between the Pades and Ranch and, and Bob Hazel and those guys, you know, they they played huge roles to make sure that that we stayed on our toes. We were we were, you know, we weren't getting complacent with how we were running things. And and they, you know, some of them brought flash and some of them brought, you know, the personality and some of you know, everybody's bought their little piece to the table, but it's been you all along. You have been the heart and soul of it. Thank God for you, Big Rich, really. Well, Dustin, thank you. And I want to say thank you for the relationship that 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 we've that you've given us, whether you know it was back in the old days with with Howard and some of the other people that have come in, in and out of rock crawling. I remember one time in Pirate, you used to dial me up and text me or whatever and say, Hey, you need to change what you just said. And I finally just gave you my password and said, if I may, if I put something stupid up there, just fix it. You know, <laughs> those were my, hey. but my beat, what I call my BS years before Shelly. Aha. <laughs> uh-huh. But as a public note, I never actually signed into your account. It's all good. <laughs> <laughs> it would have been fine if you had, I probably wouldn't have like an idiot so many times. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. is there anything else that you want to touch upon in uh, in this interview? Or Okay. For me, as somebody who would love to get back into it, dreams of it, where does the sport go from here? Well, right now we're, uh, we're moving our schedule down the year so that we can uh, continue doing it. We've, 
We're not canceling any events. We're postponing. We'll see how long this whole thing lasts that we're going through right now, this, this shelter in place. The sport is going to stay as it is. You know, we, we dropped the rear steer rule in unlimited so that uh, almost every single car now, well, actually every single car that's, that's running unlimited is uh, rear steer. Although BZ came out to, to Arizona and ran the first event this year. And, and until he broke, he was doing really well. In fact, I think he was after the first two obstacles or something, I think he had like low scores or tied with low scores on the obstacles, even though he didn't have rear steer and there was no penalty for rear steer. Him and George did really well. They were were proving that, you know, you can still do this without rear steer. The pro mod, it looks like the pro mod course class. As soon as I, as soon as I got rid of the, the rear steer penalty, everybody jumped into rear steer. They all jumped into unlimited. There was a lot of cars in pro mod at that time, but, or not a lot of cars. We, we, you know, we didn't have a whole lot of cars at any events, but this last event we did in Arizona, we had 52 cars show up. Um, so great. Nearly 3000 spectators. So 2020 was looking like it was going to be a banner year. I believe that once all this, uh, everybody's, you know, taking vacations or whatever you want to call it, sheltering in place that, they're going to be hungry for entertainment when we yeah. get out of this. And so I think the year will, will finish off really well as, as well. The future after this is a couple more years, at least of rock crawling. And, you know, the, we, now that we have our sportsman classes, we have three pro classes and we have three sportsman classes. So we kind of, we kind of mirror those. It's really working out well. We've got, I mean, we had 39, is it 39 sportsmen, 38 sportsmen at, out of the 52. So it made a really long day, but a lot, a lot of those days, a lot of those people are moving up. There was some unlimiteds and pro mods that didn't show up that will be coming out to the next events when we get them rescheduled. I foresee that the next event, as soon as we announce the date and that we're able to do it, you know, we could see 60 cars again. You know, that would be really great to get back to those, those big numbers. So yeah. the sport's growing. Well, that's nice. That's yeah. real nice. People, some of those guys that were racing have, have gotten back into looking at crawling because, like you said, it's uh, financially it's a lot more palatable to go rock crawling than it is racing. Ridiculously so. But, you know, we know it still takes so many people, you know, to make it happen. And it's insane. You know, when I look back, I've always – I've always tried to share the spotlight with the people that helped me along the way, because there were so many people from, you know, from the beginnings where it was just Frank Johnson and I building, he'd drive down to San Diego and help me with the car every once in a while and, you know, and show up at all these events. And then, you know, as we built the team through Dallas and Bender and our partnerships with uh, Blue Torch Fab Works, you know, with Dan and, and his crew. And then it, the list goes on and on. Axel Jack and Pro, Scotty Ward from Pro Comp, and, and so many people that helped carry me there. That you never consider financially how much it really costs because you most people just look at what came out of their wallet, not what came out of everybody's wallet to make that happen. You know, it's not free for Dallas to travel to all these events for him. He's putting his own money into it. He's putting his own future into it because he's burning time with me when he should be studying for something else or 
it was the same when took little rich on the road with us you know all those times it's like he could have been working towards stuff for for we rock or for his future or whatever but he went on the road so the cost outlays as a as a group are incredible i just i can't believe how many people do it the vet the volunteers like your judges they come out they get the best seats in the house you know they they really get to be a part of it all and they become a one of the most important parts of our family but that, that's taking money out of their pocket just the same you know because yep. then they fall in love with it and they start they start following it and if, if you're you really somebody can't. who is if you're somebody who has judged more than one event in your own town god bless you thank you you've <laughs> been incredible for helping the sport do that because we couldn't do it without the volunteers that's for sure that's true and you know what we've come close a couple of times doing it without volunteers i mean i've had events where you know we got eight courses running and i have three volunteers or two volunteers so you know, we made it work what we did is you know we right. just we didn't run all the courses at once you know we combined yeah. everybody had the teams the sportsmen unfortunately you know sometimes they have to judge themselves yeah you know, <laughs> they better watch the judges training <laughs> i don't mind that i actually think that's a great way to do it because it really teaches them more about the sport and, well, and another thing and is it forces camaraderie. yeah it builds yep. more camaraderie between them I, I agree. I agree. And I actually think there's an element of fairness in it because there's enough of them watching and trying to work with each one, you know, that I think it's a great idea. It just do. makes them better um, drivers too. I don't disagree. People don't realize how difficult it is to judge and to nail it, you know, to, to be a, a perfect judge. It takes a lot more knowledge and, and skill and planning than, than people realize. So, yes. but God bless the people that volunteer to do it because we all know how important they are. Yep, absolutely. Well, Dustin, thank you very much for joining us today and sharing your life with, with everyone. And uh, it was good to talk to you again. It's been way too long, dude. Oh, I miss you. I miss you so much. Uh, God is best part of my life right there. I was mostly sitting, you know, sitting in the deserts with you and all my friends and, you know, enjoying those times. I miss it horribly. I want to go back. But we'd love to have you back. Yeah. All right. Thank you, buddy. Have All a right. great day. You take care. Thank you. All right. Hi, Mom. Well, that brings this episode to an end. Hope you enjoyed it. We'll catch you next week with Conversations with Big Rich. Thank you very much.